0: Twenty seconds and counting. Twelve, eleven, ten. Four,
1: three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff. We have a lift off. Liftoff on Apollo eleven.
2: Fifty years ago this week, the United States landed men on the moon. We've all seen the grainy video footage of Neil Armstrong. We've heard the recording of his famous words about the small step. And in many of our imaginations, this unbelievable achievement has essentially been distilled down to just that. It has, in a sense, entered a domain of American mythology, with the story basically saying that on that summer day back in July of 1969, three guys just decided to slip on some shiny spacesuits, hop in a rocket, fly to the moon, and then fly back home. But this accomplishment was the result of a massive team of people working for a decade on an effort unlike anything that came before it. And it was driven largely by a desire to keep the world from being enslaved to a most dangerous ideology. So On the Sun Also Rises today, We want to take a look at what made this dream a reality and at what it means for mankind 50 years on. In many ways, the story of the moon landing begins not in 1969, when Armstrong took that fateful step, but about 12 years earlier.
0: Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite. One of the great scientific feats of the age.
2: That was October 5th of 1957. And it wasn't the democratic and capitalist United States, but the Soviet Union, a Marxist-Leninist totalitarian bloc that accomplished this great scientific feat of the age, as the reporter from that time that we just heard said there. And as remarkable as this feat was, in terms of science, it was far more meaningful in terms of politics. In the modern era, it's easy to forget just how intense the Cold War was. This war pitted the US and its allies, which were champions of democracy and capitalism, against the Soviet Union and its allies, which were true believers in communism. And they were laboring to transform the entire world into one giant communist bloc. A big part of the war was an effort by the U.S. to convince the various nations of the world that capitalism and democracy are the superior systems. And then the Soviets, on the other hand, were working to convince the nations that communism was superior and that it was mankind's future. One of the major theaters where the two sides tried to showcase their superiority over the other was in space. The idea was that whichever side could accomplish the most in space and develop new space technologies the fastest would show the world that it was the superior option. So in 1957, when the Soviets launched Sputnik into orbit, that was the first ever artificial satellite and it was a major victory for the Soviets. And for the Americans, it was one of the humblest days in history because America had been outdone by the Soviets. The launch of Sputnik into space was monumental. In the U.S., the day that it was launched, NBC and CBS both interrupted their scheduled programming on both TV and radio to introduce America to the sound of that watery beep That the Russians had programmed the satellite to make. That's the beeping that you're hearing here. And when the NBC news anchor introduced the U.S. to this beep, he said, quote, listen now for the sound which forevermore separates the old from the new. A classified document given to U.S. President Eisenhower said Sputnik was helping the Soviet Union to convince the world that the Soviet system was superior to that of America is said quote Soviet claims of scientific and technological superiority over the west and especially over the US have won greatly widened acceptance nations that have been leaning toward the US are suddenly fearing that the balance of military power has shifted or may soon shift in favor of the USSR end quote So it's clear that in some meaningful ways the Soviets were winning the Cold War, at least in terms of the visible prestige. They were convincing some nations that their model was superior. And they even had many Americans wondering what was happening. In his book, One Giant Leap, Charles Fishman writes about the questions the U.S. and the world pondered as Sputnik beeped from orbit. He writes, quote, Was America's education system inadequate? Was America's missile funding inadequate? Was America's respect for and celebration of science inadequate? Was America's sense of urgency inadequate? Americans suddenly feared the answer to all these questions was yes, and that the inadequacy was proven by the beep, beep, beep. Sputnik was a major black eye for America, and an equally major victory for the Soviets. And it wasn't the only one. 30 days after the launch of Sputnik 1, on November 3rd of 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik 2 into orbit. And this one carried a passenger inside of it. The first living creature from Earth was launched into orbit. She was a 12-pound terrier named Laika. Fishman writes, quote, The launch of a single small satellite was an achievement. The launch of a second one, carrying a live passenger within 30 days, was the sign of an ambitious space program. The Soviet Union was making itself a space-faring nation. And given the global politics, it was doing so at the expense of the United States. Worldwide, the U.S. was a laughingstock. So in November of 1957, the U.S.'s lagging space program made it a laughing stock. And the next month, the situation for America got exponentially worse. On December 6th, the U.S. was finally ready to launch its first satellite, a small one called the Vanguard, that was just about the size of a soccer ball. More than 100 reporters from all around the world assembled at Cape Canaveral to document the historic feat, but the Vanguard failed. At an altitude of just three feet, the rocket failed and toppled over, engulfed in flames. It was a spectacular failure, televised before the world. Senator Lyndon B. Johnson said at the time, What happened this morning is one of the best publicized and most humiliating failures in our history. In Switzerland, the headline in the Tribune de Lausanne said, if ridicule could kill, America would be dead today. And the afternoon of the failure, at the United Nations, the Russian delegation reminded America that the Soviet Union had a program to give technological aid to developing nations. They asked if America might be interested in signing up. A lot of this sounds almost comical in retrospect, especially knowing how the space race progressed and how the Cold War ended. But at this time in the late 1950s, it was terrifying to the US. And there were serious fears that these space victories would enable the Soviets to convince the world that communism was the inevitable future of mankind. And for the next several years, the Soviet space program continued to outshine that of America. The Soviets were the first to get a space probe to land on the moon. They were the first to photograph the never before seen dark side of the moon. And they sent those images back to Earth. And then on April 12, 1961, the Soviets put the first human being in space. Yuri Gagarin's 108 minutes in orbit made all of Russia's other victories seem comparatively insignificant. Gagarin had changed the world. With his lap around the planet, spaceflight went from science fiction to reality. A man had been to space, and he was not an American, but a Russian. It's hard to overstate just how much political significance this had for the Cold War and for the Soviet Union's efforts to show the world that the communist systems were superior. So that was April 12th of 1961, when Gagarin changed history. And then just over a month later, on May 25th, John F. Kennedy, who had just become America's new president, made his famous delivery to Congress.
0: The dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take.
2: Kennedy understood what was at stake. He understood how much the US's prestige had suffered by Sputnik 1 and 2 and the other feats the Soviets had accomplished, and especially by Gagarin's orbit. And Kennedy knew that the world was watching. He understood that space was a key battleground in the Cold War, and he understood that America had been losing badly. And he knew that just catching up to the Soviets wouldn't be enough to regain what was lost. So he challenged the country to reach further.
0: Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement.
2: And then President Kennedy dropped the bombshell.
0: I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth.
2: What Kennedy was asking the US to do was exponentially more challenging than putting a man in orbit around Earth. Yuri Gagarin had gone up to an altitude of 180 miles above Earth's surface, but the moon is 240,000 miles from Earth. Gagarin had been in space for 108 minutes, but a trip to the moon and back would take around eight days to complete. One of the individuals that was listening attentively to Kennedy's landmark speech that day was a man named Christopher Kraft. Kraft had been working for NASA and its predecessor organization for several years when Kennedy issued this unbelievable challenge. Kraft eventually became NASA's first flight director, so he was really at the epicenter of this challenge made by the U.S. President. And here's what Kraft wrote about hearing Kennedy's words in his book, Flight, My Life and Mission Control. He wrote, My head seemed to fill with fog and my heart almost stopped. Did he say what I thought I heard? He did. For the minute I was paralyzed with shock. My mind was going off in a hundred directions and I was sorting through the most amazing thoughts. Men on the moon. Had he lost his mind? Had I? End quote. Kraft was overwhelmed by the scope of this challenge. And I've got a short clip here from an interview that he gave to NASA that sums it all up concisely. It
0: was impossible.
2: Kraft says many of his coworkers at NASA felt this same way. They felt that the task was not feasible and if you look at everything they needed to do to make Kennedy's dream a reality, you see why it looked that way. The rockets they would need didn't exist. The necessary modules and rovers and variable power descent engines hadn't been invented. There were no computers that were smart and quick and compact enough to guide a spaceship. There were not any space suits equipped with cooling systems and life support systems that could function essentially as a small spacecraft with room for only one. There were no moon-to-earth communication systems. And microgravity space food existed only in the imaginations of science fiction enthusiasts. For a constellation of reasons, President Kennedy's ambition was impossible. But Chris Kraft and about 400,000 other scientists, engineers, and technicians made Kennedy's goal their goal. Rather than being discouraged by the enormity of the task, they were inspired. Kraft writes, quote, we were overwhelmed with emotion, with a sudden new sense of enormous adventure, with pride and awe that the president had dared to stand there and say such a thing. End quote. So Kraft and these hundreds of thousands of other scientists, engineers, and technicians were overwhelmed, but in a way that excited them. And they were backed by about 100 million American taxpayers. And they made Kennedy's dream their dream. They threw themselves into achieving the unachievable, largely because in the midst of the Cold War, they felt that the stakes for all of mankind Were sky-high. They felt they needed to inspire the world to look toward the West and toward freedom. And for eight years and two months, they devoted themselves to this impossible feat. After Kennedy was assassinated in late 1963, these teams only redoubled their resolve to see his dream made a reality. And then, on July 16th of 1969, 50 years ago this week, Apollo 11 launched.
1: Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared.
2: Inside were Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. They blasted through 240,000 miles of space for three days and then entered lunar orbit. Two of the three crew, Armstrong and Aldrin, then moved into a small vehicle called the Lunar Module. And on July 20th, at 4.17 PM Eastern time, the module landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong opened the door and he climbed down the ladder.
1: Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Uh, Neil, we can see you
2: coming. And stood atop the footpad at the base of the lunar module's leg. I'm um, uh, at the foot of the ladder. That's the recording of Armstrong as he made his way down toward the surface of the moon. And 240,000 miles away, Kraft and 600 million other people around the world watched his every movement in grainy black and white television images. Kraft writes about this moment from his perspective watching from NASA's Mission Control in Houston, Texas. He writes, quote, At the moment, watching live with the rest of the world, I stood almost at attention and let each second record in my memory. Neil Armstrong lifted his boot off the footpad and extended it over a world that had been pondered by billions of people for thousands of years, but never touched by physical life. It was a realm where no beetle had ever scuttled, no grass blade had ever sprouted, where not even a bacterium had ever lived. Kraft was watching from Houston with many of the men and women who had poured themselves into this project for eight years and two months, right at 100 months, and they had devoted themselves to making the impossible possible. He writes, quote, not a muscle twitched, not a man or woman moved. Across the United States and around the world, the situation was the same. Mankind stood still, held its breath, and lifted up its eyes. At 10.56 p.m., Neil Armstrong's boot touched the soft, powdery dust on the surface of the moon. His radio crackled. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. A few minutes later, Buzz Aldrin climbed down the lunar module's ladder and joined Armstrong. The two of them erected an American flag... They set up experiments, they collected 47 and a half pounds of moon rocks, and they bounced around the crater-pocked moonscape. They unveiled a plaque on the module's descent stage, which was left on the moon, and Armstrong read it to the world.
1: Dear man from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, 50. They came in peace for all mankind.
2: Below, millions and millions of people stayed riveted to their TVs and radios. During Apollo 11's flight home, they heard Buzz Aldrin deliver an incredibly profound speech. And it's astounding to me that these remarks, made by Aldrin, get very little publicity or coverage. I only happened across them as I was sifting through the unabridged and very lengthy transcripts of the three day return flight home. And then it took a chunk of an afternoon of deep searching to find a site that had uploaded a downloadable version of the audio. But here it is.
1: Good evening. I'd like to discuss with you a few of the more symbolic aspects of the flight of our mission Apollo 11. Personally, and reflecting the events of the past several days, a verse from the Psalms comes to mind to me. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him?
2: Aldrin's decision to quote these words from Psalm 8 was a beautiful and profound one. These were the words written thousands of years earlier by King David as he gazed up at the stars and at the same moon that Aldrin had just set foot upon. David marveled at God's creation. He was enthralled by mankind's place within it. Later in the psalm, David noted that the same God who created the moon and stars also created mankind to have dominion over much of his creation on earth. Pondering this left David thunderstruck. A thousand years after King David, the Apostle Paul quoted some of those same words in his letter to the Hebrews. Paul brought additional meaning to it, showing that it was not only the earthly creation that the Creator plans to give man. Paul explained that God will place everything in subjection under mankind. Hebrews 2, verse 8 in the Weymouth New Testament says, This subjecting of the universe to man implies the leaving nothing not subject to him, but we do not as yet see the universe subject to him. God made the entire universe for man. All of it will be put under mankind's control. That's what these astounding scriptures reveal. In his book, The Incredible Human Potential, the late Herbert W. Armstrong wrote about the profound truth contained in this passage. Mr. Armstrong wrote, quote, For those willing to believe what God says, he says that he has decreed the entire universe with all its galaxies, its countless suns and planets, everything will be put under man's subjection. We are to be given jurisdiction over the entire universe. The passage in Hebrews makes clear that the whole universe is not as yet under man's jurisdiction, but it says it will be in the future. And this scripture in Hebrews is not an oversight or a mistake. It's not hyperbole. The Bible contains numerous scriptures showing that the Creator's plan for man includes the whole vast universe. God has a universe-sized job for man. And to understand that universe sized job, we can listen to another short clip from Buzz Aldrin. This is something he said shortly after setting foot on the moon, and he was describing the scene Beautiful, beautiful. Magnificent desolation. There it is magnificent desolation. The lunar world that Armstrong and Aldrin walked was barren, it was desolate and the rest of the universe appears to be equally lifeless. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans eight, twenty-one through 23, that the entire creation is now in bondage to decay, and it's figuratively groaning in anticipation of the redemption of mankind. The anticipation is acute because after redemption, mankind will reverse all of that decay. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote about this, saying, quote, This passage in Romans indicates precisely what all astronomers and scientific evidence indicate. The suns are as balls of fire, giving out light and heat, but the planets, except for this earth, are in a state of decay and futility, but not forever. End quote. And then he goes on to say the universe is eagerly waiting for mankind to, quote, impart life to billions and billions of dead planets as life has been imparted to this earth, end quote. Right now, the moon and all those billions of planets are, just as Aldrin said, magnificent desolation. But humankind will turn that magnificent desolation into magnificent biospheres and ecosystems. Man will vivify the planets. Our future is out of this world. Mr. Gerald Flurry is the host of the Key of David program here on KPCG. And he's also the editor-in-chief of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. And in July of 2009, he wrote a powerful article about the lunar landing. Mr. Flurry wrote, quote, the lunar landing in 1969 was so inspiring. It was as if the whole world was united for a brief moment in time. And then Mr. Flurry goes on to explain why this event, 50 years ago this week, unified and inspired the world. He writes, quote, It captivated the world's attention because it projected mankind's vision far beyond this earth. This insight is based on the Bible's teachings. Through the prophet Isaiah, God tells human beings to look out past our humble planet so that we can see Him and His power. Isaiah 40, 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who has created these things? During that moment, 50 years ago, the people of the world lifted up their eyes 240,000 miles above Earth's surface. What they were seeing was a glimpse of the Creator God. They beheld His handiwork. They were given a black-and-white preview of humanity's color-drenched and life-filled future. That future centered on bringing life to the universe. God made the moon. That's clear from Genesis one fourteen through 14-16. And he also made the vast universe, which is stated in Isaiah 45, 18. And then we see in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and also in Job 32:8, that God created mankind in his own image, and he endowed man with breathtaking mind power modeled after his own. This mind power can make an impossible idea, such as landing a man on the moon and bringing him back home possible. On that day in 1969, it wasn't Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin or John F. Kennedy whose glory was on display. It wasn't Chris Kraft and all those 400,000 scientists and engineers and technicians. And even though the event was instrumental in helping America convince the world of the superiority of capitalism over communism, it also wasn't the U.S.'s glory that was on radiant display that day. It was actually God's. This is why, as their eyes were lifted up, the people of the world were largely humbled and unified. On some level, especially for those who pondered Aldrin's recitation of Psalm 8, the people saw a glimpse of the Almighty and of His universe-spanning plan for mankind. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. Please send your questions or comments to tsar at kpcg.fm. Do you remember the moon landing? Send us an email and let us know what you thought of it. We'd love to hear your comments. And if you don't have a copy of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's masterful book, The Incredible Human Potential, please go to thetrumpet.com and click on the Literature tab and we'll send you one for no charge at all. We would like to thank NASA for making so much of the video and audio of this event available, and Universal International News, and also the Brokoffs for granting us permission to use some of their music for this episode, and the team at Logic Pro who developed the software that allowed me to digitize and kind of spaceify the Sun Also Rises music for this episode. And we'll leave you today with... A final recording from President Kennedy. This is the conclusion of a speech he delivered on November 21st of 1963, just about 20 hours before he would be killed. And this speech was his last official act as president.
1: Frank O'Connor, the Irish writer, tells in one of his books, as a Boy, he and his friends would make their way across the countryside. And when they came to an orchard wall, that seemed too high and too doubtful to try and too difficult to permit their voyage to continue. They took off their hats and tossed them over the wall. And then they had no choice but to follow them. This nation has tossed its cap over the wall of space. And we have no choice but to follow it. The difficulties, they will be overcome. Whatever the hazards, they must be guarded against with the help of all those who labor in the space endeavor. With the help and support of all Americans, we will climb this wall with safety and with speed.